This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, a website, a portfolio, or an online store. Create your own space today by visiting squarespace.com and use offer code TREK10 to save 10%. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm donate to get our alien badges and art prints featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for warp. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me once again, as she is every week, from Australia, is Kate Walsh. Kate, you're looking a little special today. Special? <laughs> Why is yeah, that? Yeah, like, like, like we've got some special features going here on Warp 5. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Um, this, is, um, this episode of Warp 5, I, I believe, is going to be known as uh, In Conversation, Chris and Kate. <laughs> hey, that sounds good. Maybe we can we can sit right in front of a fireplace with a mystery picture up there on the mantel. We can't really quite see what's in that frame. <laughs> Director's chairs. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And we can just misremember everything together, just like Rick and Brandon do. That sounds like a really good idea. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So obviously today we're going to talk about special features and we often reference the Enterprise Blu-rays here on the show but we've never actually taken the time to really talk in depth about the sets themselves and we have the first two seasons in our hands now and with season three available for pre-order and I've actually already pre-ordered Kate I don't know if you have or not you're going to run down and pick it up in the store aren't you yeah we usually get them day one in our store there's not a big deal here about pre-ordering particularly Star Trek, it just doesn't seem to be as as big overall. But Yeah. Well, I have to pre-order from the States because they don't show up in the stores here on day one. But Mm. at any rate, season three is out there now if you want to get your hands on it. And so we thought it would be a nice change of pace to do a show about these new releases and specifically about the special features, which are really some of the best I've seen on any Star Trek release. And today we're going to dive into the season one set. So, Kate, there are a lot of small extras that are spread across the six discs in the Season 1 Blu-ray set, and those include a cast introduction. There are those things they call archival mission logs, which have creating Enterprise. There's a profile of Scott Bakula. There's cast impressions of Season 1, which is actually quite interesting to hear the cast talk about how they felt, especially because for a lot of them, it was their first big job you know, on mm. a TV show. Also, Enterprise Secrets, The Temporal Cold War, and Beyond. There's a feature about Admiral Forrest. There's Inside Shuttle Pod 1. Not Shuttle Pod 2, which apparently Rick Berman thinks was a great episode. (laughs) I'd love to see that one. I didn't get to see Shuttle Pod 2. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, there's Celebrating Star Trek, and then there are these little things they call the NX-01 files. 
Plus, there are commentaries for Broken Bow, Silent Enemy, Shadows of Pajum, Shuttlepod 1. Actually, Broken Bow has two different commentary tracks. Mm. And then there are text commentaries for Broken Bow. So that's a third one there. The Andorian Incident and Vox Sola. And then there are deleted scenes for a lot of episodes. But, you know, there are really three huge extras that, for me, make these discs worth the money, even if you already have Enterprise on DVD. And those are In Conversation, Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, the three-part to Boldly Go Launching Enterprise, and On the Set of Voxola. So those are the three we're going to really talk about today. Yeah, I had all of the DVD sets already, as a lot of Enterprise fans would have. Um, we don't have Netflix uh, here either, so you know it's, it's only hard copy that we can watch things in. But the special features on the Enterprise uh, Blu-rays in particular are outstanding. I've got the Next Generation ones as well, and they are good, but uh, just the, the cast and the crew and going behind the scenes and, and the candid discussions that we hear, uh, there are some brilliant scenes in these these three main um, commentaries that, that really give you a sense of who these people are, and it's, it's, just, it's yeah. absolutely fascinating and a really deep look at the show from a number of different perspectives. You know, I think part of it is, they're, they're brilliantly produced, no doubt. I think part of it is, though, Brandon mentions in, I think it's during the In Conversation when he mentions going to Destination Star Trek London and being surprised to find how many people were really into Enterprise and how many people wanted to know more about this particular series. And I think a lot of it is the fact that The Next Generation has been so well documented over the years that while the extras on the TNG Blu-ray sets do give us new content and new things that we haven't seen before, it's different than Enterprise because so much was already known about that series, but Enterprise has really been a mystery to fans about what really went on behind the scenes, what the, mm -hmm. how the actors felt about it and such, compared to the other series. And so I think that's one reason why these extras on these Enterprise Blu-ray sets are really hitting us as being so incredibly informative and outstanding. I also find that given that, you know, one thing we do learn about the show through these extras is that is how difficult it was for them to make Enterprise at a time yeah. when there'd already been these three other new era Star Trek series and everyone had already risen up through the ranks and moved on. And so in many respects, you know, particularly with the writing staff, they had to start from scratch and uh, it, it was, yeah, I, I find that quite fascinating to hear it from that perspective and and it really, uh, it, it brought to the fore how many more challenges they, they possibly had here when they thought it was going to be easier given that they'd already done all this before, but in actual fact it presented a whole new set of challenges. Right. I think that it affected them both in a positive way and in a negative way. And the negative way is, as you said, with the writing staff, that they you get the sense from them that they were really frustrated trying to come up with new stories. You get that feeling from mm -hmm. Brandon, you get it from Mike Sussman, you get it from Andre Bortmanis, that their goal, of course, was to find new stories to tell. But with so many episodes already in the bag, that was very, very challenging. On the other hand, from a production standpoint, you feel like 
everything was so well oiled, and mm-hmm. you could see where they had learned from doing TNG and DS9 and Voyager. And when they got to Enterprise, the things that they did were amazing. Um, you know, the creating the set with the corridors that are all connected, so that they could just walk around those corridors and just keep shooting and have essentially an unlimited walk where Mm. it always looked like you were going through a new part of the ship. Uh, The fact that the bridge, everything on the bridge was on casters and you could just roll walls away so that you could get different camera angles. The fact Mm. that they had a camera on an arm built into the set itself so they could pan across the tabletops and go around the bridge and get easy camera shots and different angles that way. And just all these different little touches that went into creating the set, you could tell that they had learned all these things from building the sets for the previous series. And so when they got to this one, the experience was a real benefit to them, that they could actually build the set to make life easier on the directors, to be able to create more dynamic shots, and just make life easier for them in general. Mm, that's a really good point. And I, I think given Rick Berman had been around for so long, I think he says in the show he'd been around for 18 years. Yeah, uh, by the end of Enterprise, yeah, yeah it was 18 years. and, um, you know, it, he would have had it down to a well-oiled machine. That it was Michael and Denise Okuda had worked with him for a long time um, as well as any number. I mean, we even had, uh, you know, Doug Drexler who was – who we yeah. spoke to before, who was just so familiar with uh, the design um, principles yeah. of the ship. Of, of the, he himself was a fan. You know, he'd worked on all these shows before, so it wasn't anything too new. There were obviously new challenges, but he had that edge. Um, I think, as we've said, though, the, the writing side presented a major challenge, and even though... Uh, Brandon had obviously had a lot of experience in writing for Star Trek. As he said, he found it very difficult being given that so many people had already moved on. Also that writing for Star Trek presents its own unique challenges and it's in some ways he said it was a very specific style of writing. It also lends itself to a whole range of genres within it. But it's right. you know, it's very technical, it's science, but it's not real science. There's a certain ethic, a certain type of you know, jargon that you've got to get used to, uh, right. the mood of the story. And then on the other hand, also trying to create, as you said, brand new stories and not just random sci-fi Star Trek-y stories, but stories that were going to be uniquely enterprise. And it seemed to me in watching these special features that Rick and Bradham were quite sincere in wanting to do that and, and as they, they've used Dear Doctor as an example of one of those uniquely enterprise stories and Shuttlepod 1, um, not so much Shuttlepod 2, mind you, um, <laughs> but I think that the pressure of writing a network series having to pump out yeah. those 26 episodes and particularly in the first season as they were trying to find their feet, that that pressure made it very difficult to keep true to this vision, which was quite different to the other shows. You know, Voyager, for example, it was very similar to Next Gen, but it was set in a different uh, point in space. So there were going to be new species, new challenges, but it was the same kind of stories. 
whereas Enterprise was looking to do something quite different. And I think that right. they possibly would have done better had it been 13, 14 episode season. Right. And that's an interesting point because, you know, television these days has moved towards that 12 to 14 episode per season range. And you mentioned network TV, but actually the, the 26 episode thing really goes back to TNG, which for most of the seasons of TNG, they did 26 episodes and it just became a thing with Star Trek that we're going to do 26 episodes, even when there were other shows on at the same time that would do 22 or 24, mm. Star Trek did 26. And it is, yeah, incredible pressure because you think about it, it's, you know, really that's two weeks per episode year round. And of course they're not mm. shooting year round. They have some breaks. So uh, just the pressure, you know, of trying to shoot an episode in about seven days and and write an episode but you know in the in conversation part this this is all something that rick and brandon talk about a lot and of course they also talk about the well-known i think pretty much everyone knows at this point that rick really wanted a break after voyager mm. and the studio really wanted a new show because they had to keep star trek on the air because at the time that was still their big property on UPN and Mike and Denise mentioned that they had only five weeks from when Voyager wrapped to when Enterprise started shooting. They had five weeks and Brandon talks about how he was feeling burned out. Mm. So, you know, all that energy going in to Voyager and of course he had kind of, you know, backed off of Voyager to help develop Enterprise, but still, you know, they're all involved in all of, what's going on with Star Trek. And they just felt kind of burned out at that point. Do, what do you think, though? Do you think that Enterprise... Okay, here's the question. The other thing that they talk about during the In Conversation Extra is what we've talked about before, their desire to create a more Earthbound show during season one. But the studio wanted to have the futuristic thing. They didn't really want to do a prequel. They finally acquiesced and they agreed to a prequel, but... It was a lot more like Star Trek than what the original concept was. So so that's already, I think, part of the problem with the writing, too, is that I think that the original idea that Rick and Brandon had would have made a more interesting television show than um. what we ended up with, even though I love what we ended up with, too. And, you know, I like season one. Um, that's one thing that I don't completely agree with what Brandon says in here is that he seems to feel that Season one, it pretty much sucks except for four mm. episodes. It's it, it's the feeling I get from listening yeah. to him. And, and I really don't agree. I think season one actually has quite a few good stories. But my, my question anyway was, do you think that if we got the show that we got, but there had been, say, a year, a year and a half break after Voyager, do you think that would have made a difference in the quality of the show? Like I know, I know that... Brandon has said that he felt burnt out towards the end of Voyager. He had taken that break. He was working on Enterprise, but not just through the Blu-rays, but through other sources, interviews that I've heard. He has seemed to express that working on Enterprise, this new and exciting concept, did seem to reinvigorate him, that it was daunting, but it had energised him because it was such a departure from the 24th century stuff that he'd worked on. 
And I'm going to cross-reference the special features a little bit here because I found it interesting. Um, there's the other special feature that, that we'll talk about is to boldly go launching enterprise. It's a three-part look at um, you know, really the, that first season of enterprise and getting it up and running. Towards the end of that particular documentary, Brandon expresses that he had been also feeling quite dejected and burnt out at the end of mm-hmm. the first season. Which makes me wonder, yeah, you know, did he did he really have the energy? Did, did was it kind of only just hanging in there and feeling just motivated enough to get this show off the ground? And then as he got into it, and the, you know, the the week to week pressures of pumping out these twenty six scripts, you know, quickly took its toll again. But then he also spoke in that particular documentary about he spoke about his lack of confidence in the show and in in recruiting writers and thinking that perhaps he wasn't ambitious enough in recruiting writers because in his mind he didn't really think anyone would want to work on the show. And I found that really interesting, that um, that sense that somehow the show wasn't good enough or it wasn't going to be good enough, just a, a, a bit of a, a lack of confidence in maybe his abilities or where the show was going. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that initial setback by the studio in what their vision was that they had so much passion for and that's where the energy came from and, you know, then that gets knocked back and he had to bring in his idea of the temporal Cold War from a, something else he was going to work on and, and and the realities of working with UPN set in. Yeah. Yeah, I you do sense that lack of confidence, which I think is not particularly unusual with creatives. Mm. That, you know, again, I'm creative myself and a creative professional, I should say, not just, I mean, everyone can be creative, but it's actually what I do for work. And so I, I know how it feels where you, you're working on something and you... He says that you feel like everyone else's show is a show, but somehow mm. yours isn't. Yeah. And it's kind of like that where, you know, you're working on something and it may be just as good as what everyone else is doing. It may even be award winning. Mm. But while you're doing it, you know, you kind of feel like because it's work, you know, I mean, to someone looking from the outside, it looks like yeah. a glorious it looks like a glamorous job. But Whereas on the inside you see all the hassles and the stress and the yeah, problems. Yeah. And, and as as they say in um, in conversation, Rick and Brad and both said, you know, they'd get all this, this mail and they would only look at the bad stuff. Yeah. They yeah. just wouldn't see the positives, so, which that. I think is, is natural, yeah. you know, when you put your heart into something. I'm glad that they finally learned not to read the message boards and read the comments because <laughs> all you have to do is, it doesn't matter what the subject is, just go to any website, go to any article and read the first five comments and you'll quickly realize that, yeah, you're better off just not reading those comments because I I don't, I don't know, it's not productive. And so initially when they were reading that they were reading the name but but at the time you know it was kind of new that this sort Mm. of instant feedback from fans was kind of new because the the internet was still fairly young as we know it Mm. uh, at the time that enterprise was debuting and so it was kind of a new thing and you know actually myself you know i was really involved in 
dis- online discussions and reading comment threads and stuff back in 2001 as well. And these days I, I generally don't, you know, unless it's stuff on our, in our own forums, for example, where, where we have people who actually come because they want to discuss something, really, yeah. really discuss it. But, but yeah, he seemed kind of, I think the fact that he felt the writing wasn't coming together and he assembled the writing staff itself, mm-hmm. he felt kind of like it was a f- personal failure yeah. that this didn't all pan out, which I don't think is necessarily the case. And he's clearly a perfectionist because he talks mm. about write, rewriting almost every script in season one. And he says he just felt like it was something that he had to do. And so. And you can almost imagine you know, him trying to rewrite them all to get them up to the standard that he knows he, you know, he, want, he wants it to be and he believes it should be. But with those time constraints and not imagining having to do that amount of work, he just wouldn't have been able yeah. to pull it off to the extent that he wanted to either. Right. And he would be exhausted all the time. So. Yeah. Yeah. So also in conversation. Okay. So. So what did we feel, though? Did we feel that a break between Voyager and Enterprise would have benefited the show? I think it would have benefited the show more broadly, yeah. I yeah. think, I- But it wouldn't have been a cure-all as long as the studio was still going to hinder the creative mm. vision that they had. Yeah, I think there That's was the studio hindering the vision, the, the length of the seasons, um, you know, the time pressures. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think because... You know, a lot of these people had already gone through that for so long. It, even if they'd taken a break, it wouldn't have taken much to get them back to being tired again. Right. Yeah. So if we make the seasons shorter, as we mentioned a moment ago, how would you feel and how do you think the perception of Enterprise would be if it had gone seven seasons, but it had had 12 episodes per season and had told very rich, very tight stories that would have been 84 episodes. Now, we got 98 episodes, so we would have had fewer episodes, but mm. we would have had seven seasons. There's also, um, if you're expecting higher quality, there's less margin for error in those kind of dud episodes as well. But do you think you would have as many dud episodes in a 12-show season, season? You're always going to get some. I don't think... Um, That's- you know what? What what's conceived on paper isn't always going to come out in the same way, right? But if you know what story you want to tell and you have twelve episodes to do it, I think that of course there are going to be moments that don't work, but you're not going to be in a situation where you are in a twenty-six episode season mm. where you really are almost just having to pad in some weeks because you've got to get twenty-six episodes yeah. out. You don't necessarily have that many stories to tell. And, and particularly with Enterprise, there's that pressure of, yeah, needing to pad, but also um, not wanting to obviously repeat what's been done before, which right. creates that added pressure. So, yeah, I think it, yeah. that would have been a good thing for the show, but you, that you would have wanted them to have a fair amount of free reign in terms of the creative direction. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a little bit of a break, Enterprise being syndicated so there wasn't studio interference with the creative vision, shorter seasons altogether mm-hmm. would have made everyone working on the show feel more comfortable. And what did you make about the, the references in, in conversation to Manny Koto? <laughs> there were quite a you few know, of them in jest. Well, uh, it's, but um, 
it's funny because the first time that I watched the extras, I felt like Rick and Brandon were were really irritated about all the fan mm. praise of Manny Cotto. <laughs> but then when I watched it again, I, I I feel like they're kind of poking fun at Manny Cotto. In a, I mean, I think in in some ways they feel a little bit bothered. I mean, as I think I probably would in their shoes as well. That the fans are all. Oh, Manny Koto saved Enterprise and gave us this wonderful fourth season, and it's and it was the all only crap season until of Manny the show worth along. watching. Yeah, it was all crap until Manny came along. Uh, I think they feel that way a little bit, but but I also think that they. I think it's tongue in cheek. Come to terms with it. Yeah, I think it's tongue in cheek. I think it's though. become yeah, an in joke that you know you right. talk about Manny Koto. Manny Koto respects canon, and we don't, and you know, and right. Um, well, and it's it's, it's the, like our joke on Trek FM about Manny Koto's magic bag of hindsight. All the things <laughs> that he has said were going to happen in season five, mm. years after the show went off the air. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they have a sense of humor about it. You, you can imagine. I think so, yeah. But they also have, uh, but this is where it's interesting because, yes, they, Manny Koto saved Enterprise. Brandon and Rick destroyed it, actually destroyed the whole franchise and and you can see that they are lighthearted about that, but at the same time, there's uh, there was a moment in in conversation when they're talking about how Brandon goes to conventions and and Rick has only ever yeah. been to a couple. Well, it's got to be the right locale for Rick. To go. <laughs> That's right. You know, Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, Rick says to Brandon, he says that. Yeah, aren't you worried about going to conventions and having people attack you about, you know, um, or you know, there was some comment at some point about being the devil incarnate. Um, yeah. Destroyed Enterprise. And well, destroyed a, Star Trek in general. Yeah, yeah. And um, I certainly got a sense that that, that was still, it, it, it was a personal thing, you know, that they, that at least yeah. Rick. Um, oh, and Brandon, in the way that he spoke, that they, neither one of them wants to be thought of in that way naturally. And the, well, it has the, to be frustrating. Mm. I mean, Rick Berman really did try to uphold Gene Roddenberry's vision mm. and really was a guardian of Star Trek for 18 years. And no one person is going to do something that makes everyone happy all the time. Mm. And he also has to answer to the studio and there are certain situations where you know he's gonna have to give in on something enterprise itself is a case where they told him look if you don't do it we'll find someone who will Mm. and so he said okay i'll do it because he knew that star trek was more likely to be protected in his hands than in someone else's hands yep in the sense of staying true to what gene roddenberry wanted it to be but at the same time trying to loosen the reins a little bit to make it work on television so they had to feel a bit frustrated by that i also found it interesting when they were talking about the design challenges of the nx01 and uh and, and how they settled on this real kind of nuts and bolts submarine look which we've spoken about previously um and then they compared it to the jj abrams ship 
And I like that, yeah. <laughs> I found that really interesting because, you know, when I've spoken with other Star Trek fans about, you know, the issues with it being, from my perspective, very action-oriented, less, you know. The perhaps, Abrams verse. Yeah, yeah. Being action-oriented, yeah. Which is not really how I see Star Trek. Um, but I haven't really right. had discussions with people about um, the the design issues and, and the fact that, uh, you know, they work so hard on Enterprise to try and find a design for this ship and the aesthetic internally that would look futuristic from our perspective, yet not more futuristic than Kirk's time. And all of that seemed to go out the window with Abrams. And yet I don't hear those kinds of discussions as much. Not as much, but I've heard some and... It is a case where I feel like with J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, with the Enterprise, with the bridge in particular, that they just went for shiny, general, sci-fi set design. There's nothing about it that feels like Star Trek, Mm. other than there's a giant view screen in the front. But it just doesn't feel like Star Trek. Now, it does have some similarities, I suppose, to the NX-01, in that you do have more cases where the where people might be standing up at a at a position. Uh, I, I know Worf stood up all the time on the D, but you know, that was like a like a hotel lobby that he was in there. But overall, I mean the, the, especially in the 2009 film, the bridge feels like a hospital. And into darkness it got better because they added more color textures to it and it they kind of toned it back a little bit. But I, you know, I can see that. But but for the NX01, I mean, I think there you could see the thought, the, the real thought process going mm. on in designing this ship, which was that we have to make this feel real. What are we going to do? We're going to go out. We're going to go to a submarine and find mm. out what actual real quarters on a tight ship are like. And then we're going to take elements of that and we're going to work it in to the design of a starship and I, I, a lot of people have, don't like the NX-01, and especially when Enterprise premiered, a lot of people didn't like the ship. I think some people have warmed up to it a little bit more these days. But I don't know, for me, from day one, I loved the NX-01 because how are you going to make something retro and make it futuristic? And, and I just think that they really hit the nail on the mm. head designing that ship outside and inside. Well, the details that they discuss on the Blu-ray, such as having to walk under a beam to go into, you know, the yeah. captain's ready room, which is what they saw mm-hmm. on the submarine, that cramped space and making the most of everything they've got, the railings, the, um, you know, none of the real conveniences, of elevators and, you know, that they, they would have had on other ships. And the size of the ready room, they talk about that a bit as well, Mm -hmm. comparing it to Picard's ready room and how they made their creative decisions. And that was a very interesting part of the conversation also. And I have to say, I laugh every time I hear um, Brennan talk about the irony of being in space and having pictures of space on the walls. (laughs) I love that bit. (laughs) (laughs) Like being on a sailing ship and having pictures of the ocean. Only on the NX-01, they have pictures of other enterprise vessels, which I think is a little bit of a compromise on that. We're not going to have pictures of space this time. (laughs) We can look out the window and see that. Well, that one made sense because on the D, they had the different enterprises Mm. on the wall there. So, And then on the E, they had them inside the case. So 
So that made sense. I, I actually like the touch of having those in there, but I love Brandon's comment about, yeah. <laughs> about the ocean. I'm like, yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> and that was excellent. So in conversation is really for me, one of the best extras I've ever seen on a disc, just because you've got the two show creators mm. sitting down, as they say, misremembering together. <laughs> Rick says, all I do is misremember. And Brandon says, well, maybe we'll misremember together. So that was excellent. I, I like the part where he talks about uh, the role that was played by Travis Montgomery. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's talk about launching Enterprise a little bit, the To Boldly Go bit, the three-parter. And this is another great extra. They go into so much depth. I mean, this is about an hour and a half mm. altogether. Yeah, three separate parts. So Countdown, they talk about a lot of what we've already talked about earlier, about you know feeling burned out, trying to get the show going. One point that I found interesting in there is that and we haven't talked about this one as much in the past when we've talked about the Earthbound first season. Mm. But the idea of Earth Firsters, like an Earth Firsters movement of people yes. that don't really want humans to be venturing out into space. Mm. And that's something that we finally get in the fourth season when we get to the xenophobia elements with Terra Prime and demons. But that was something that they actually had wanted to incorporate in the show from the very beginning. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm so glad we got it eventually, but it would have been amazing to have started off with that and even then had the chance to round it off and to look at the consequences of the mission and how it um it obviously it spurred those groups on. But um I, I as much as I love the concept of, of being earthbound either for the first season or the first you know, three quarters of that first season, I'm just not sure that it would have gone down so well in the ratings. I probably would have loved it, but I can imagine yeah. a lot of Star Trek fans not it, it just being too unfamiliar, like when they talk about the theme song. Not really that much yeah. wrong with it. It was just so unfamiliar for, for Star yeah. Trek. I think you're right. It's almost like that would have to be one of these Hulu original programs or Netflix mm -hmm. original programs mm -hmm. that we're getting a lot of these days where I feel like the networks are using Hulu. Now, Netflix, they're doing their own thing, but Hulu being a service that is operated by a number of different studios, I feel like those studios are creating shows that they know probably won't work on the network itself, but they're producing them, they're putting them on Hulu. And it feels like uh, this Earthbound Enterprise would be one of those shows where if you produced all the episodes at once and you just put them out there and you let people watch through, it could really take off, but it would be a big risk to put it on regular television. Mm. One thing I really did love about this particular special feature was the um, the talks with both Connor Trenier and Dominic Keating about their experiences in being cast for the show. Um, yeah. And, uh, I mean, Connor's just delightful hearing him talking about yeah. having to do three auditions in one day and completely botching it up. <laughs> yeah. And then we hear you know, uh, Dominic Keating talking about being at his audition. And, and of course, we've, we've already heard some of the history before of um, uh, through in conversation by this point in terms of Rick having um, come across him through Voyager. 
Yeah. And, well, and uh, even before the Blu-ray sets, you know, that story is yeah. is pretty well known. Yeah. Um, and uh, in this particular special feature, he talks about his um, audition process and, and seeing John Billingsley there, and it's uh, it's that some really great really stuff. <laughs> that he was there and put his ear up to the door to hear the squawk in the mm. audition. <laughs> And then the story about the first day shooting and and such. So that was great. You know, Dominic's story, I already knew most of the elements of. But Connor's story, I actually had not heard this story prior to these Blu-rays. So it was especially fascinating to me. And I'm watching it and I'm thinking, oh, my God, we came that close to not having Mm. Connor Trenier play this character. Probably the best character on the show. I think he said there were like four other really good-looking guys there, and he was thinking, "Yeah, as long as they're after an actor, I'm going to be okay." Yeah, but then he felt he bombed it. Yeah. <laughs> the special features actually tie in really well on this Blu-ray. You know, we have um, Dominic Keating to- and uh, I, I think do we get John Billingsley talking about his audition as well? He talks a little bit about yeah, his, yeah, um, and about the squawking. Not as much as the other guys, and yeah. uh, and then. Of course, when you've watched In Conversation, you also get Brannon talking about that same audition and the squawking. And so the the special features just all seem to, to tie together and cover the same things from different perspectives. And it's really unique when you, because I've watched them recently, I watched them out of order. So um, it, it became much more apparent to me that the, the cross referencing became much more aware of it i watched in conversation right. last and uh, yeah right. yeah it's quite quite fascinating yeah hearing about the writing challenges from the various writers and from uh, from later yeah. from roxanne dawson the issues that were going on there right you know one thing that came up in part two of this that i i didn't really realize is that they didn't actually lock in scott bacula as archer until three or four days before shooting started. Now, you know, I, I've always known, going back to when they were developing the series, that they wanted Scott Bakula to be Archer. You know, there wasn't any, who are we going to get to play the captain audition process? It was, this role's for Scott Bakula. Hello, Scott, we want to offer you this role. But I, I didn't realize, and I knew that Bakula was in when he found out that he wasn't going to be the next captain, but he was going to be the first captain because mm. that was something that was appealing as charting new territory. I didn't realize that it came down to just right before shooting, before they really got in. And he, he talks about sitting in his car waiting to find out from his agent if he can go inside and have the the reading, you yeah. know, with the, looking over the scripts to, to start shooting or not. You could only imagine that it must have been like really, really close to just nailing it and it was just the very minor details at this point. Some, yeah, little thing. It it must have been easier to work out than the whole bit about having William Shatner as Kirk in a (laughs) two-parter. That's such a great story. Enterprise, isn't that great? I'm sure fans know that they talked about having Kirk on Enterprise. Uh, What I didn't know is the reason why it never happened. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think William Shatner completely forgot the reason why it didn't happen as well. Apparently so. It's what they said he wanted what 20 times top of show as his yep. rate to yep. be on and you know I I get it that when he plays Kirk he's going to demand a lot of money because 
it's William Shatner and it's Captain James D. Kirk. But at the same time, I, I think back to when DeForest Kelly was on Encounter at Farpoint and he's just like, I'll do it, whatever, you know. It's, mm. I, I think he he either took no money or he just took like just base, whatever the lowest rate that like they have to pay him to be on. So it was just whatever, nothing special. It's just, it's Star Trek. I'm going to do it. It'll be a great homage. And here, this was like the studio, the studio executive just laughed out loud. <laughs> the way what? that Rick and Brennan told the story, <laughs> they'd gone to lunch. Manny was starstruck and probably unable to even eat his lunch. Yeah. And uh, William Shatner pitched this story idea. And pretty much before they all got back to the office, the agent had already called and said, here's the dollar figure. So William Shatner yeah. must have been pretty certain that they liked that story idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was that was crazy. So a lot of good stuff, though, in part two as well. You know, talking to the actors. They talked to Jolene a little bit as well. And... Um, then in the final part, the final part I felt didn't have quite as much meat in it for me as the first two parts, but that's where we get a lot of the talk about problems with the scripts and the challenges mm. of coming up with new stories and just a general feeling of frustration, which um, is it's interesting, although, like I said earlier, you know, being a creative myself and for, for many, many years now and working in publishing working on magazines and and such, I can completely understand how they all feel. That behind the scenes, they were all tired and feeling frustrated, even though I think that the product that they put on the screen was, for the most part, really excellent. And you don't realize until you watch them talk about it here just how down the mood mm. seemed to be on the set, at least yeah. amongst the the people producing it. It took me by surprise because I'm a real fan of the first and second seasons. They're my favourite. And I wondered after watching these features again if if a part of the dejection around it was that even though it was good Star Trek, it, it perhaps wasn't in line with the vision that they had hoped for for the show. Yeah. I mean, I found it interesting when Branham was talking about the episodes that he considered the best and the worst. Mm -hmm. And he's got down as his as his best. He's got Shuttlepod One, which you know okay. um, yeah. people have spoken about quite a bit. Fusion, Shockwave, which finished off this this season, Silent Enemy, and Dear Doctor. And he said he actually thought Dear mm -hmm. Doctor was. Uh, I think he said it was the best, maybe if not the best in the whole series, certainly the best in the first season. Yeah. But um, he he's liked that one because it's it's one of those uniquely enterprise stories that could only be told on enterprise. Yeah. And and in hearing him say that, that seems to be you know, exactly what they were looking for. He said that that's what they wanted for every episode, for it to be something that was uniquely enterprise. And if it wasn't, then they needed to get another story. And I think right. that's where some of the disappointment came in. That they they he says at one point that they fell into this trap of just doing the same old stories that could have been told in any Star Trek. Yeah, but I feel like they fell into that trap more in the second season than mm. the first season. I'd agree, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's but interesting. But it's an easy trap to fall into with so many stories having been told in the past and trying to do 26 mm. per season. Mm. And, and starting the show off for the first time. Right? Yeah. First seasons are going to be more difficult as you find that voice. 
So I think that the mood comes down to everything that you just said, plus 10 years of feeling mm. beaten down by the fans to the yeah. point where they have come to just really question what they created, maybe more so than they really should yeah, because of the fan reception. But on the flip side of that, I think that the growing popularity of Enterprise right now is helping mm. them to to come out of that mm. and see that they actually did do good work. And they are aware of it. They're aware of it through conventions, through, uh, you know, through what's going on on Netflix, that, you know, more people are turning to Netflix to watch Enterprise. There was some enthusiasm around the season five campaign, even though, you know, at this stage that's yeah. not going anywhere, but people are turning back to Enterprise. They're getting excited at the Blu-rays again and they're getting a good reception when you know the actors and the and and Brandon go to these conventions, so um, yeah, it, you know, I think it, it's a good thing if the show eventually gets that recognition. But I, I do think you're right about the fan reception. I think that that had probably yeah. beaten them down by that point, and there was um, a, a lacking in confidence and perhaps uh, being a bit harsh on themselves. I mean, I, I I feel like I rate that first season much more highly than than. Um, the, the general fan base does. Do. Yeah. Or the producers as well, yeah. Mm. Well, the one other thing that we said we would talk about that we should touch on real quick is this feature called On the Set. Mm. And this is really interesting because there was this guy, Barry Kibrick, who hosted a PBS show called Between the Lines. And he put together this thing called On the Set. And his concept was that he was going to go to different TV shows and he was going to give you an inside look at what it takes to produce an episode of various different TV shows. And so he chose Enterprise to create the pilot of this. And he did basically a half-hour show. And it feels a lot like an Entertainment Tonight kind of show without the glitz to mm -hmm. it, maybe. But it's really, really interesting. But it never went anywhere. It didn't get picked up. No one ever saw it until these blu-rays came out and they put it on the blu-rays but it follows it follows the crew and the writers and especially roxanne dawson who directed vox sola and shows what it took to put together that episode and that really unique alien that we have there yeah it's um this is a great feature and it, it is very much focused on the challenges around creating the alien um, that was in Voxola. I've I've always loved Voxola. I love that horror feel about it, um, mm -hmm. and it, it's interesting to hear her talk about the challenges of this um, this kind of alien created out of what was it created out of like plastic? It was stuff. bubble wrap, yeah, and yeah, plastic wrap and bubble wrap, or just they, kind of melted and twisted. And then they had to melt it onto the act. It was yeah, yeah, and it's, and it's added really slime on top and. Um, as she said, you know, yeah. it's not particularly scary, but they're going to have to make it look scary. <laughs> I think it was really successful, actually. And you add the, the digital effects to that as well. They did afterwards, and it looked really good. Right. Although the digital effects are fairly minor, the majority of it is yeah. actual on-the-set right. stuff that they created. Yeah. And they made special suits for them, yeah. covered in this stuff as well with harnesses. Slime everywhere. Thought it was awesome. Although one of the best parts of of that, seeing the suits and all, is seeing Scott Bakula dancing in the suit 
while he's waiting to be hoisted up and talking about how he's thinking about having these made as crew jackets for next season. Yeah, I was thinking to myself, this guy's had a few too many Pepsi Maxes. (laughs) (laughs) But this feature is really, really interesting. And, you know, if you've watched Voxola, you really need to get this set and watch this special feature because... They really did a good... If you see what they actually did to create that creature, and then you know what it, how it actually comes off on the screen in the episode, mm. it was really an amazing creative job of figuring out how to create something abstract and use everyday materials to do it and then shoot it and add a little bit of CGI to it to make something that really f- feels creepy. And when you see at the start, and, and Roxanne Dawson is this having this meeting and she just seems overwhelmed with the challenge of how on earth are we going to do this and they work their way through it and it's yeah it's quite amazing but you know what the funniest I have to say the funniest scene for me in this this particular feature is when we're shown the writing challenges and we're in Brandon's office and you've got the two writers sitting on the couch and Brandon's twisting himself around, trying to explain how these people are hanging, but not upside (laughs) down, but just awkwardly. And then they pan over to the writer's face and it's just the blankest look. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's just nothing, no one's home on the faces of these writers. It's absolutely hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) It is really funny. And what's especially funny is that before you see why Brandon is doing that, they're going to a commercial break, what would have been a commercial break in the show, and they just show him doing it, and then they go to commercial, <laughs> and then they come back, and then you see why he's doing it. So, But did you notice that he really... does the same thing twice? He does it standing up near the writers, and he does yeah. it at his desk as well, so he's right. reenacting these same meeting scenes at every meeting yeah. he has. It's really good. So <laughs> so this is a great feature as well. And now we, we've talked about a, a lot of details, but... Really, we've just whetted your appetite, really, because there is so much mm. stuff in here. I mean, each one of these, well, the the end conversation is an hour. Each part of launching Enterprise is half an hour. And then this on the set of Voxola is half an hour. Plus, there's all the other stuff on there. So it's it's incredible the amount of content they've put together. Okay, well, any final thoughts on the special features, Kate? Anything that... um. As we said, we've only touched on some of them. We've touched on the the main documentaries, but there is a lot more there. The season one commentaries are excellent. And even um, just the the subtle touches of the the menu graphics and the the music that that goes with the menus. Um, The only downside for me is having to wait four and a half minutes before I get the menu on my first Blu-ray in the set because it's all advertisements <laughs> for the next gen Blu-ray. That's, <laughs> it's a little bit that's annoying. That's the case on like everything you buy these days, <laughs> which know. is really frustrating. But yeah, I'm not going to hold there. that against it. It's an excellent set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm with you there. So yeah, uh, definitely these discs are worth picking up if you're an Enterprise fan or even if you're just a, you know a fan of creative work because the the amount of information about the creative process is really incredible. But Kate, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of other things besides Enterprise on the network this week. So everyone, here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, The Orb. 
looking for Parlock in all the wrong places. Well, and you also get the feeling here that she's only, I mean, Worf really is only being rejected because she's not interested. It has nothing to do with whether or not Worf is Klingon enough or any of that. She's just not interested. She's interested in Quark. Earl Grey. The holodeck. Alexander Rojinko was conceived on the holodeck. <laughs> That's exactly right. In Worf's calisthenics program with Skeletor watching because he was just frozen there and he couldn't look away. The ready room. The man trap. Well, it wasn't what Roddenberry wanted to do with it. It was what uh, the, the writer, George Clayton Johnson, wanted to do with it. But it was basically making the character more sympathetic. To the journey! The Doctor. But I love that moment when Chakotay, like, uh, was projecting himself into the room. And, like, he, he totally, like, kneels down and gets super serious and calm like Chakotay does. He's like, he's like, what you've shown us is it's not what you're made of. But what you do or how you feel, you know, like, you just start to get, like, <laughs> and like even in like season two, they start to realize the Doctor is not just a hologram; he is becoming something more. Commentary: Trek stars. Caprica. Prequels are sort of uh, a constant trap that people end up going to. You know, the, this thing was successful uh, and it ended. Well, let's go before it ended and tell a different story. Warp five. Klingons on Enterprise. Having. The Klingons at the very beginning of the series running through that field. Do you think that was born out of the discomfort that the studio had in the idea of the prequel series to begin with? Trek news and views. The Naked Time. Gold shirts are easily ripped and disposable. Yeah. Blue shirts self-replicate so that they you know show no damage, and red shirts whisk away sweat. Yeah, yeah. they're highly absorbent. There you go. So that you can't tell that your security awesome. guards are nervous. Literary treks. David R. George III, Revelation and Dust. And it feels like an evolution for Starfleet as well in the way that they've built a star base. Well, I'm glad that came across because that was sort of one of the things that I was going for. You wanted to be an evolution in Starfleet's construction of star bases. Mm -hmm. It should be something brand new. And because it's an important station, because it's in an important location, it... it really needed to be, I thought, uh, a grand station. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek fix. We have new Trek talk for you every day of the week, and some days we have two shows for you, and you'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zoom. You can download or stream from the website. Lots of ways for you to get the shows, so check them all out. We even now finally... Kate, with the launch of Standard Orbit, we now have a show like Warp 5 for every series in the Star Trek franchise. That's awesome. So everyone go and check those out. And if you'd like to share your thoughts on Enterprise Season 1 or the Blu-rays or, you know, anything else, you can contact us in a variety of ways. You can go to the website at trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to Kate and me both by email. You can send us a voicemail by using the tab on the website and your webcam's microphone. And you can also go to our forums and uh, talk to us and other listeners about the show and about Enterprise at trek.fm slash forums. And then in social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter under username trek.fm where we're tweeting away all the time about Star Trek. Now, Kate, if someone wants to talk to you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
the best way to contact me um, at the moment is going to be via the website, via the forum, sending us an email or a voicemail. But I am also on Twitter. And you can find me on Twitter at Kate is great okay. 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 <laughs> okay. All right. That's great. You can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere on social media under that same username and at my personal website at cbrianjones.com. Also, before we go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsor for this week's show. And our sponsor this week is Squarespace, the web's best hosting and CMS that makes it simple for you to create your own blog, website, or portfolio. Squarespace also makes it extremely easy to sell items online with their integrated commerce feature. Squarespace Commerce is available in the US, UK, Canada, Australia, Belgium, France, Germany, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Spain, and it allows you to sell both digital and physical products. 30-second merchant sign-up with Stripe gives you instant approval and does not require any paperwork. You can even begin receiving money for purchases via direct deposit in moments, and full tax and shipping rules by region also help you run your store. Plus, the order management interface lets you easily track outstanding orders, resend customer update emails, and print packing slips from a single interface. You can even move your existing Shopify or Big Cartel inventory over to Squarespace with just a few clicks. We really love Squarespace here at Trek.fm, and that's because Trek.fm itself is built on Squarespace. So find out for yourself how you can create your own store, website, blog, or portfolio today by trying Squarespace free for 14 days with no credit card required. Plans start at just $8 per month, and commerce is $24. Plus, as a Trek.fm listener, you can save 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts by using offer code TREK10. So just go to squarespace.com and try it for free. And we really thank Squarespace for their support of Trek FM. We also wanted to invite you to check out Andrew Allen's album, Smooth Federation. If you like the jazz cover of Where My Heart Will Take Me here on Warp 5, maybe you liked it better than the version used on the show, maybe you wish it was the one used on the show. Maybe Brandon that... wishes it's the one on the show based on the, <laughs> I, I think the discussion he's regretting, he had the uh, special features. Yeah, I think he's regretting not picking Andrew Allen's version at this point in time. But um, Anyway, you'll find that plus nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek. So go and pick up the album in iTunes or on Amazon. Yeah, definitely pick that up. And lastly, if you'd personally like to support what we're doing at Trek Film, there's a way you can do that as well. In addition to supporting our sponsors, you can go to trek.film slash donate where we have eight alien-themed badges and art prints. They are original illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. And we have various levels of contributions that you can make. And then you can mix and match if you want badges or art prints. Choose what's right for you. We'll get them right off to you. And your donations help us pay for the costs of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring Warp 5 and all of our other shows to you every week. So we really appreciate your support of the network. So thanks everyone for listening. Join us again next week here in the Decon Chamber for another episode of Warp 5.